For this sort of holiday episode, we revisit a friend from my college days who I have not spoken to in over 20 years. We delve into the movies and shows that are intertwined into her life and experiences, and we will find out how a musical theater kid from Monroeville, Pennsylvania, became a pastor. Welcome back to Screen People. Welcome to Screen People. Uh, Kelly and I have been talking. You don't know who Kelly is, but we've been talking for a while only to realize now that I had the wrong microphone connected to my um, recorder. So we'll do a little follow up. This is okay. Reverend Kelly Smith. Hello. <laughs> Kelly and I have known each other um, since we were very, very young, not like children, but practically. We met in college, um, we were in the same department. Uh, we both mm -hmm. studied theater together for three years, and then we didn't see each other again till tonight. And here we are. You went to school for theater. How did that happen? My father's mom, my grandmother, um, who I never met because she died of brain cancer when I was a baby. Uh, she grew up with a love of both music and theater, and she kind of bestowed that upon my father. And so I grew up uh, listening to music and being introduced to the theater at a very early age. One of my earliest memories in general is watching Sound of Music and West Side Story, which were musicals that my parents watched with me all the time. I've always been an extrovert, you know, I've always been kind of a performer. And so I grew up performing and dancing and singing. And uh, when I got to high school, I got bit by the theater bug. And so I was in the shows when I was in high school and then decided I was going to be a Broadway superstar. So I went to college and majored in theater. My father, um, who's very practical, uh, said at the time that the only way I was allowed to major in theater is if I went to a liberal arts college and got a BA rather than a BFA, uh, because then at least I would have a well-rounded education. And by gosh, he was right, because I am not a Broadway superstar. 20 some odd years later. Yeah. So I leave school before our senior year, and then mm -hmm. you complete your senior year. What happened to Kelly after that? My senior year, the very first show we did that season was Godspell, a musical I had been pushing for with our professor who dismissed it for several years uh, and then reluctantly gave in and decided to do it. It was, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, and it was kind of like a fun, goofy thing. And he said, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to do it fun and goofy. I want to do it serious and reflective of the struggles that the world was facing, sort of. At the end of the rehearsal run, we were rehearsing the crucifixion scene. It became incredibly emotional for us during the rehearsal. I mean, it's, it's a whole musical about the story of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, maybe there was 13 or 14 of us, probably only two of us were like, church people, if you could call it that. But for whatever reason, this particular rehearsal and this, this act of crucifying Jesus or, or this person was really hard. Um, and we were all really emotional. And the director finally said, we got to take a break. And so we all went outside to smoke because that's what you did. It just so happened that when we went outside to take a break, it was the sun was going down and the sun was setting. And I was so overwhelmed with my emotions that I didn't understand that I kind of had to walk away from the rest. And I was like breathing into the sunset. And at that moment, at the top of that hill with a cigarette in my hand, I heard as clear as day, a voice that said, Kelly, I gave you your gifts and abilities and now it's time to use them for me. I was like, what? I, I didn't know what it was. We went back to rehearsal. We finished rehearsal. The very next day, I happened to be close to the head of the theology department. It called her and I said, I need to talk to you. And I went to her office and I told her what had happened. And she said, 
Kelly, I think that's the voice of God. And I was like, no, it's not like God doesn't talk. God really doesn't talk to me. And she's like, no, I think you need to be listening. And so that kind of snowballed. And I took a year off after college, toured with a theater company for about 10 or 11 months. And during that time, I met with my pastor um, and kind of prayerfully considered this experience I had had and what I was being called to do and decided I was called to seminary. I, I didn't want to be a pastor at the time, but I thought I was called to get a master's in divinity. And so the following year, I moved to Dallas and I got my master's in divinity at Southern Methodist University because it's one of the Methodist schools that I was raised Methodist. I moved back to Pittsburgh and I did like nonprofit work for several years and inevitably realized that God had was calling me to be a pastor. And uh, I've been a pastor for 11 or 12 years now. Uh, When I got my master's, I also got a certification in urban studies. So I, my specialty is urban ministry and and urban work. So uh, that's kind of what I do. I want to ask you about your childhood, but not like generally, I don't, I don't, this is not a therapy session. Um, But you mentioned that not only was Sesame Street important to you as a child, but you said something that really like stuck out to me. It was like, when I'm homesick. I still watch it. Tell me about that. Sesame Street is the television show I remember growing up on. Uh, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. But for some reason, Sesame Street was the one show that as I grew up, like, it was still cool to like Sesame Street. It's this weird thread in my life because I watched it as a kid. And then I remember like in high school on marching band trips, we'd bring coloring books and it was always Sesame Street coloring books. I had growing up a security blanket, like a kid's security blanket. And my dad gave it to me. I bought it when I was a baby born in the hospital and it had Big Bird and Little Bird on. And when I finally started talking, I couldn't say blanket. So I called it a bee. And it had birds on it, the birds from Sesame Street. So I called it a birdie bee. And that birdie bee existed in my life. I still have the shreds of it for 30 years. Like my high school friends made fun of it because it was gross. It came to college with me. And so Sesame Street happened to be this kind of interwoven thing. When I was in high school, I got a job at the Sesame Street General Store at the mall, which was like the Disney store. And I worked there for two years. And in college, I had Sesame Street shirts and I had a Sesame Street poster on my wall. Truly, in my 20s, 30s, even now, if I stay home sick, like I will watch it. I don't know. It just makes me feel better or if it's it's nostalgic in a way. And when I had my own children, I instilled or I tried to instill a love of Sesame Street on them. And we have all the characters and my kids know them all. And our annual summer vacation until COVID was going to Sesame Street Place, which is the Sesame Street theme park, which is north of Philly. You know, I don't need Disney World. Forget Mickey Mouse. I want to go see Elmo and Abby Cadabby and Big Bird. And the beauty of it now is I'm very glad because it's like, it's something I can be proud of. Like Sesame Street has always been an an important show for children. You know, it has always embraced the diversity of the world. Sometime in the last decade, well before the big Black Lives Matter movement of 2020, they introduced a Black Muppet. She's a little girl and she has curly hair and she sings a song called I Love My Hair. And it's all about showing her with different hairstyles and how she loves all her different hair. And I thought, you know, like that's important for my white children to see, you know, and to recognize. Um, And that's just who, who and what Sesame Street has always been. 
what I found fascinating is that the Muppets continue to change by what the needs of society are. And they have mm-hmm. always gotten criticism. Always. They've gotten criticism at the beginning. They've gotten criticism, what, within the last month? Yeah. Right? It never stops. But they never stop. And I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. I thought it was really interesting when COVID hit. It, within the first 60 days, when everything was locked down, Sesame Street put out a special. Maybe it was 20 minutes long, but it was all of the Sesame Street people on Zoom and FaceTiming. It had to be within 60 days. And all the different Muppets and all the different people from Sesame Street recorded themselves in their different places of living. They had some celebrity guests or whatever. And I remember my children, specifically my son, watching that. And at the time, he was, you know, five. It was like, okay, this is what we're going through. Because at that point, he had only seen any other people on FaceTime and Zoom for 45 days and how hard that was for him. And Sesame Street made it real, you know, and helped him understand. And they talked about why, you know, Alma said, we're staying safe and, you know, whatever. There was this show. It started April 17th, 2011. Eight seasons, 73 episodes. Ended May 19th. 2019, about a half a year for the pandemic. Famous show, received 59 Primetime Emmy Awards, the most of a drama series. Won Hugo Awards, Best Dramatic Awards, Peabody Award. Considered one of the greatest rating successes. It was called Game of Thrones. Don't sue me. That's my ringtone on my phone. That's amazing. What an incredible show. Shot in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in Croatia, in Iceland, in Malta, in Morocco, in Spain. Epic. Millions of dollars Mm. per episode. And it only grew. I think their first season, they had a budget of like 50 million. By the end, it was like 100 million. One of the most watched shows ever. The reason I bring it up is not to give it any more fame or notoriety, depending on how you felt about the end. Why I bring it up is because you mentioned how cathartic it was for you. I'm pretty sure I watched it in real time. I didn't like wait years and then binge it all together. If you go back to the beginning, we were talking about when you met me and meeting my family and realizing my family is really important to me. And I have two younger brothers who are eight and 10 years younger than me, which is a substantial age difference, but we're still close. And my youngest brother, Cameron, him and I have always had similar interests, in particular with pop media and culture and movies and stuff. And him and I had a a shared obsession for Star Wars. In fact, he's at Disney World and was sending me all the pictures from going on the ride of Resistance today with his kids. Um, And I'm super jealous. He was drinking the blue milk drink, you know. Um, I'd like to point out that I remember this person as a child. Yes, as a kid. And you just told me about him going to Disney. With his kids. With his kids. (laughs) And you just made me feel really old. And I don't appreciate it, but go on. Well, yeah, him and I are 10 years apart. We have the same age kids. So there you go. So him and I had this shared love for things like Star Wars. And in 2011, he had graduated college. He started dating my now sister-in-law in in college. and, And so they graduated college together. They moved in together. You know, it got engaged, got married. And he was no longer just my little brother. Like we were really close, but all of a sudden he had his own life. When Game of Thrones started, him and I both really wanted to watch it and liked it. 
I was the one that had a grown up job and had HBO. And so he would come over. My sister in law doesn't like anything fantasy, anything kind of fantasy, epic. That has been like the one thing that my brother and I can share that like my sister-in-law didn't steal from me. (laughs) Um, And so he would come over every week and watch Game of Thrones for years. I mean, until we had children. And then when we had children, we'd watch it at the same time and then call each other, you know, when it was over. He goes further into the obsession. I can appreciate it for what it is. I loved it. I loved it. It took me, you know, however long it was, 60 minutes, 45 minutes, however long. From the beginning to the end, I lost life. Like I just yeah. got sucked into this show and I wasn't worried about anything else that was going on. I just got enamored by this story and by the the beauty of it and, and by the beauty of the production. Like you said, all that money, like the production value of this show was not like anything I had ever seen before. But also it was this connection point with my brother and I, you know, that we both loved it and we'd call each other and talk about it or... You know, when premiere week was coming on, we text messaged about it. It was like that one thing that we could still connect with that we had that shared love for. So it was kind of important and special. Absolutely beautiful. We're going to switch gears to something a little emotional. Cue switching gears music. You have switching gears music? I could. I might have just played it. (laughs) All right. All right. Here we go. November 19th to any 13. A film comes out that is quite powerful. It has a budget of $150 million, folks. It makes $1.2 billion in the box office and becomes an absolute phenomenon. Fast forward a couple years later, a sequel emerges with a budget of $150 million, makes $100.4 billion. Frozen was a world phenomenon when it comes to animated films. It was incredible. Even if you didn't like it, you couldn't escape it. Kelly, what is your connection to Frozen 2? So your Frozen, when you described the Frozen 1, I mean, it was everywhere, right? You couldn't escape it. And uh, I sometimes, I don't know why, I I blame college years, if if something is really popular, I hate it just because it's really popular. And so I was totally anti-Frozen. I didn't watch it. I never watched it. I was not really a huge Disney person. I mean, maybe when I was a kid, I was a grown-up. I didn't have any interest in princess stuff and this Let It Go. Oh my God, I hated that song. And then I had my son. And when my son was about, he we were we were visiting family in Virginia in Williamsburg. And my aunt watched Frozen with him. He got up earlier and she let me sleep in. So she took him in her room and they watched Frozen together. And so he watched Frozen and, you know, he liked it. No big deal. But then shortly thereafter, Frozen 2 was coming out. And he started seeing commercials for Frozen 2 on TV. And he asked, Mama, can we go see Frozen 2? Can we go see Frozen 2? And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to see this. Now, I am such a movie buff. It was always important for my children to go to the movie theater. The very first movie he saw, he wasn't even two years old and he saw Cars 3. He hadn't even seen the first Cars or the second Cars, but I took him and he's used to going to the movie theater. That was an important... I want him to like that. My daughter's not as interested. I said, all right, fine. We'll go see Frozen 2. At this point, it was an excuse for me to eat movie theater popcorn. And so we went to see Frozen 2. He must have been about 
four at this point and Micah was born, I believe. Maybe she was one and a half. And we went and saw the movie, just Jeremiah and I. And I had perhaps one of the deepest, most profound movie watching experiences I had ever had in my life. I cried through the entire movie. In fact, I remember at one point, Jeremiah going, mama, what's wrong with you? Like, it's nothing. I just like the movie. And I don't know why. I don't know if it was, I mean, generally when I have these deeply emotional reactions to something like movies or music, I can connect it to whatever was going on in my life at the moment. I remember being pregnant with Jeremiah and seeing that movie was, it's either called She or Her, where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with the operating system on his phone, uh, which seems like a really bad premise for a movie, but the movie, I I saw uncontrollably. And I was super pregnant. I was eight months pregnant. I was emotional. I was a basket case. Frozen 2, I don't remember being in a place in my life where I was feeling particularly vulnerable. You know, I had (laughs) Jeremiah, my daughter, maybe because I wasn't sleeping because my daughter didn't sleep through the night. I don't know. But this movie, it was so, it was just so deeply spiritual for me. And yes, I am a pastor. And yes, I spend a lot of time dealing with spiritual aspects of life. But I've never been one of those kind of people that ties pop culture into theology. Like, that's not really my jam. You can get like the gospel according to Dr. Seuss, you know, like the gospel according to Harry Potter. And they try to find these parallels between the gospel. And that's not my thing. But for some reason, Frozen 2, like the entire movie for me was a deeply spiritual story about Elsa in particular. And she, you know, the premise of the movie is, you know, they're all happy and they're living happily ever after, after the first movie. And she, the movie starts with her hearing this voice, this calling to her that forces her to leave the place where she is safe, the place where she is comfortable. She says, everything I've ever loved is safe here behind these walls. Like I am safe here. Why do I want to go out and follow this thing? And she can't, she can't help it. She's being drawn to it. And so she leaves everything which is familiar, everything that is um, secure in her life. The family comes along and she goes out into the unknown. That's the song. And into the wilderness towards the end of the movie when she finds what it is that has been calling to her. And she finds it's like a glacier. And she goes into this, onto Holland and she's singing this song about show yourself. And when the song starts, she's frightened. She's shaking. She's scared of what she's going to find. And she's digging deeper and, you know, show yourself. And then she stomps her foot down and lights up. And everything around her are all the memories of her life and her ancestors all around her. And in that moment, she realizes the voice that was calling to her is the voice of her mother calling her to acknowledge who she is and what she is. And she, she's changed, right? She's shiny. She's glittery. And she, she's no longer frightened, she says. And in that moment, in the midst of her ancestors, in the midst of her mother, she finds out exactly who she is. And it's for us who are on spiritual journeys, we're all on spiritual journeys, whether we recognize it or not. That's really our calling, that we are constantly being called out into the unknown. I've been ruminating on it since I saw it. So it's been, what is it, three years? I still cry every single time I hear the song Show Yourself, which my daughter plays on Alexa multiple times a week. I have an entire sermon series that I could preach all about the parallels in the movie Frozen 2 because it it was just so deeply profound. I heard an interview with the Lopez's given shortly after it, Frozen 2 was released. Pretty sure it was on a podcast, uh, but they were being interviewed about the making of the movie and being nervous and 
and the creation of the story and how they put it together. And I don't think when they were putting it together, they realized how deeply spiritual it was. And I think that's the beauty of it. You don't do that intentionally. It just happens. Jonathan Groff said that when he heard that song, he was immediately sort of transported to when he was younger and when he first came out, that fear of doing this new thing, of accepting that there's something else that he needs to go towards. The next right thing is one of the songs that breaks my heart every Mm -hmm. time I hear it. And this is a genuine song about grief. Kristen Anderson Lopez was one of the main people who wrote it. I think she's the person who actually wrote the whole thing. And she said, what do you do when your world has collapsed? What do you do next when everything falls apart? And she actually talked about co-director Chris Buck, who had an adult son pass away after Frozen 1 was done. And they were in the process of doing press, right? They do press junkets. takes a long time. Mm -hmm. They go everywhere. He was doing press. They eventually ended up at the Golden Globes with Frozen. They ended up at the Oscars. And she wrote that song trying to kind of figure out what it must have felt like for him. Because she said, I watched him go into these events and, you know, put on a brave face and move forward and support the film and go to the awards and, you know, get the little statue and all that. While at the same time, having what would be any parent's greatest nightmare happen to him. And she said, I just just started writing it. What happens when everything crashes? You just get up and you cannot think ahead. You just think about the very next step. I want to talk about Lost in the Woods. Robert Lopez, he wrote Lost in the Woods because he wanted to teach boys that it was okay to have feelings and that it was okay to express your feelings because that was not something that was taught when he was a boy. And he knew that this movie would reach many, many boys, many little boys in the world. And he wanted to show them, hey, okay to have feelings. It's okay. And they even say that they didn't, Christoph didn't sing officially until Frozen 2 because they wanted him to find love before he was able to sing. Oh. Yeah. See, okay. Well, they, I mean, that's the one of the other just kind of cheesy things about Frozen 2 is, speaking of Christoph, I appreciate that Christoph as the male love interest, if you yes. will, He's a different kind of man. Lost in the Woods is all about him being broken up and not knowing where to go without her, which is usually what you expect the women to sing of the men. But then there's two different parts that I remember explicitly where Kristoff says something and you're like, oh, that's different. Like he catches Anna at one point and he says, here I am. What do you need? He doesn't assume to know what she needs. He asks her. And you don't see that in princess movies or, you know, pop culture a lot. And then the other one was towards the end of the movie. And I don't remember the actual line, but she she's apologizing to him for hurting him or for leaving him. And he says something like, that's okay. My love is not fragile. As if to imply, like, you can't break me, kind of, you know, you can't break my love for you. And it's like, oh, that's really profound. You know, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a profound moment. So he's just a different kind of male character. 100%. Agree with you 100%. Yeah. Last one. Because I said this was a Christmas episode, darn it. We have oh. to do something Christmassy. Cue Christmas music. I don't know if that happened or not. There's a movie very close to my heart that I was so excited that you brought up. One of your holiday go-tos. Tell me about Elf. Well, I love Will Ferrell. 
I love Will Ferrell humor, but most of Will Ferrell humor is not family appropriate. And one of my favorite Will Ferrell movies is a movie called Kicking and Screaming. And it's not a movie that very many people have ever seen. It's a family Will Ferrell movie. Like kids can watch this movie. And he plays a dad who becomes a soccer coach reluctantly. It's just funny. He coaches this ragamuffin group of kids. His son's not very good and he's on the crappy team and, you know, they start winning, whatever. Um, But I love this movie because it's a movie that you could watch with kids. And so when Elf came out, it was the same thing. It was like Will Ferrell humor at its best, but family friendly. So we can all enjoy it together. And I, you know, I saw it before I had kids or before I watched it with kids. I don't, do you remember when it, when did it come out? 2003. Okay. Yeah. Well, before uh, obviously, uh, it was just such a good, wholesome, funny movie about, you know, the magic of Christmas. It just, I don't know. It's heartwarming and funny at the same time, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. It, it's, in, it's interesting to like dig into this particular film. Um, John Favreau directed it. They purposely picked actors who were the absolute opposite of Buddy the Elf, which is how you get James Caan, Peter Dinklage. They actually said they wanted to get a Bob Newhart-like person, and then they accidentally got Bob Newhart. Um, (laughs) By the way, yes, and you know why? Because his grandkids, I want to say, it was either his kids or his grandkids, were huge Jon Favreau fans. And they were like, you got to do this movie. Oh. Yeah. Isn't it funny how these things work out? I found it interesting to learn that this was actually Will Ferrell's like first big movie after leaving SNL. So he had actually already filmed Old School, which is not a great movie, but you know, college-y frat house kind of movie, except that he's a grown-up, right? But it hadn't come out. And so he said, I'm in New York wearing yellow tights, jumping around New York City. And he said, I thought to myself, if this movie doesn't work, I think my career is like over. They had two screenings. They had a they had a family screening. Let's see how this does with families. And it did really, really well. So like, okay. And then they played it to like a non-family audience. And his, I think it was his manager or whatever is like, oh my God, this is like practically all frat boys. And it did really well then too. It was like, okay, I think we actually have something that's going to be like overall a success. I believe he wrote somewhere where he like, it totally shocked him at how big it became. Zoe Deschanel character did not sing until Jon Favreau realized that she sang and they changed the character a little bit. Because they were oh. like, we need to use this. It's, it's a ridiculous film. It ended up being the seventh highest grossing film of that year. As silly as it is, it's still like, great. <laughs> and of course, James Caan. Just everybody. Everybody's incredible in this movie. And it's just ridiculous. It's so good. And there's those lines. Like, that's, that's the, you know, these classic movies where there's lines that like, you know, go on forever. Like, Santa, I know him, you know, or Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? You know, like these things, like everybody knows these lines. You know what? I found an interview with Will Ferrell. And he was talking about being at the movie premiere and James Caan came up to him at the premiere of the film. And he goes, uh, you know, uh, every day on set, I thought you were uh, way too over the top. <laughs> but now I see what you're doing. And uh, great job. <laughs> <laughs> now comes a segment called Random Facts. <laughs> For real? This is a segment? I don't know. Just making. I'm making this up. I make this okay, up. Okay, I don't Kelly. know. 
I don't fucking I mean, know. you have 12 episodes. I don't know if this yeah, is Yeah, in two years. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, random facts. The fight with Santa Claus, where they yeah. destroy the entire place, they had one take. Wow. Because it was going to take so long to put everything back together. Yeah. So they had one shot. There is not an elf, too. Will Ferrell turned down $29 million to do Elf 2. As in, he turned down $29 million. I mean, I'm sure he's not not doing Elf 2. I'm sure he's not hurting for money, but did he say why? He felt that the film was just kind of perfect the way it was. Oh, yeah. And he felt that if we did a sequel and it wasn't as good, then it would kind of cheapen the whole thing. And it would Mm -hmm. also look like he was just doing it for the money and he didn't want to do it for the money. So he has consistently refused to do a sequel. Full circle, it became a musical, 2010. And it closed in 2013. I was going to say, I don't remember it being very popular. It did not last, sadly enough. And they did a stop motion uh, Christmas special, apparently back in 2014. Yeah, I don't think I watched it, but I remember it being on TV. Reverend Kelly, Pastor Kelly, it's Christmas time. Christmas time, year two of the pandemic. Any fun thoughts? Yeah, that's right. I'm putting you on the spot. On anything in particular? I don't know. The coming year, uh, the holidays, um, the value of Bitcoin, you know, whatever. I don't do Bitcoin. <laughs> Cryptocurrency think, stuff you want to talk about. Um, I think um, I think that we as a society, we're still, we're still reeling from the newness of COVID last year at Christmas time. Yeah. Like it had been, you know, since March, you know, we had been kind of locked down and especially going back into the fall, but we were so close, like the vaccines had just started getting administered. And we, you know, we were on the verge of thinking our lives were going to go back to normal. And so there was some optimism and some hope in the air. Um, I think this Christmas is entirely different. I think uh, I just, I think people are hurting uh, and, and we're in a lot of pain and we're dealing with a lot of grief and we don't, we don't acknowledge it. We don't confront it. Uh, and we're walking around carrying it. And I think um, Christmas is always supposed to be like a special time and a joyful time and a happy and all these memories. And um, I mean, for me as a single mom, Christmas has always been the time that I feel the worst. Um, that as a natural extrovert, um, I mean, I don't, you know, this may not be relevant. I'm a single mom by choice. I did this on purpose. I, you know, I did this to myself. I did this intentionally. (laughs) Um, and, and I don't, you know, it, it was what I was meant to do. Uh, but it was plan B, you know, plan A was, you know, meet the love of my life, get married, all that. Um, and at Christmas time, when you're creating these memories, like tonight, my kids and I were making sticker doodle cookies after dinner, which is not normal. I'm not usually that kind of mom. Um, or putting up Christmas decorations or looking at Christmas lights. It's so sad for me. It's so isolating and lonely to be doing that with my kids by myself. Um, It's just, you know, it's just sad. And so Christmas time has always been hard. And I 
as a natural extrovert, I find myself like December is my busiest month, not just because I'm at work, but because I do so much stuff to keep myself from getting lonely. Um, and I, there, there are people around me in my life who are experiencing a lot of pain right now. Um, the, the gentleman that I'm dating, um, is, is dealing with a lot of pain being apart from his kids, you know, first holiday season being divorced and, and all that. And, you know, a good friend of mine, her mom is in early stages of dementia and, and how hard that is at holiday time. And, you know, families at church, you know, that are still having loved ones die of COVID, you know, um, and, and it's really painful and we pretend it's not. And, um, I, I just think, you know, as a person that, that cares about other people and as a pastor, whose job it is to look after the spiritual needs of people, like I've really been very intentional to give people permission to face their pain, acknowledge their pain. Um, you don't have to bottle it in. And so in fact, we're doing, um, next week, uh, I'm doing something called if, uh, the longest night service. It used to be, it started like 10 years ago. They called it a blue Christmas service, but I hate that because it makes me think of Elvis. Um, and so this is called the longest night because December 21st is the longest, you know, night of the year. Um, and it's really just a worship space to kind of confront our pain, acknowledge that, that this joyful season isn't joyful, uh, for all of us. And, um, and just, you know, provide people the opportunity to reflect on their brokenness and, and their, you know, struggles and their emotions and their, you know, their pitfalls. And, um, and I think that's important because I think as a society, that's not generally, we don't generally want to do that. Like we try to hold it all together. Like we have to have it all together. And if you're feeling down, that's okay. Go take that drug or go buy that or go on that trip or go drive that car or, you know, um, when now we just gotta kind of sit in the grief, um, you know, be like Job from the Bible and just sit in that grief and, and confront the pain so that you can move past it. So, you know, I hope every, I hope and pray everybody has a wonderful holiday season, but even if it's not super joyful, like we can still find moments of growth and connection in the midst of it. This is probably the last episode I do for 2021, the year that we thought would be better. And when I think about 2022, I cannot help but have some layer of hope about what could come. I don't know if it will. Clearly, I've been proved wrong before. When <laughs> you, madam, when you, reverend, pastor, mother, friend, look forward, what would you say? I see hope in human connection and human relationships. I think that's where we draw our strength from. I mean, obviously, as a pastor, as a deeply spiritual person, I believe that we're all intimately connected to some sort of divine creator, you know, spirit of life, energy, however we wish to define it. But that creator and that spirit created us to be together and to lean on one another and to draw from one another. And one of the phrases that has come up in my vocabulary a lot in the last three months is pouring into someone and allowing someone to pour into you. I think that's the hope I find in the future is finding new ways of pouring into someone and allowing someone else to pour into us to draw strength and to draw hope and, you know, to find joy, which is, you know, not happiness. It's, you know, something that the world can't take away from us. That's beautiful. Thank you, Pastor Kelly, for jumping in here to screen people 
I will end by saying thank you and that it has been such a delight to talk to you after so many years. Mm. And I'm grateful that we had this conversation. Me too. And that is the end of episode 12 of Screen People. I'm recording this on New Year's Eve, and I think we can all agree it's been quite a year. I started this podcast in 2020, in the summer of the pandemic. Two years later, I have 12 episodes, which is not a lot. But I've also had an incredible time hanging out with amazing people and hearing their stories. I just want to thank my dear friends who have supported this podcast by being a part of it or by just encouraging me to keep going. A special thank you to my biggest supporter, my wife. She has encouraged me these last two years and even made an appearance in the podcast, despite hating podcasts in general, with the exception of one. No, it's not mine. That honor goes to Sandy Toxvig. We will be back next year with more episodes full of stories, reviews, random facts, and whatever else we can come up with. Thank you for listening, and Happy New Year.